can you see that sugar is an unnatural food product? It's natural in the fruit and in the vegetable, but when you take it out of that, it's a drug just like cocaine and tobacco and any other drug alcohol is. I mean, what is alcohol initially? It was grapes. It was grain. It was not an addiction at that point, but you take the uh, substance out of that, you make it a drug. So if parents can see that sugar is not a benign substance. It's not an act of love. It's actually a toxin that you're giving your vulnerable child. Obviously, we're living in today's society where it's all over the place. Can you at least limit it? Because we can handle a certain amount without damage. The, the problem is it's so much, it's so abundant, it overwhelms us. Hello, friend, and thank you for tuning in to episode 49 of the Feeling Full podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Vera Tarman. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. Dr. Vera is a medical addiction specialist and medical director of Renaissance, which is an inpatient drug and alcohol treatment center in Canada. Her personal and professional passion is in treating food and sugar addiction. She is the author of the book, Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction, and is the co-host of the podcast, Food Junkies. In this interview, Dr. Vera shares her journey struggling with food addiction and how she overcame it by treating other people who were struggling with drug and alcohol addictions, which eventually led her to lose 100 pounds. If you're someone who struggles with food addiction or any addiction really, or even know somebody who does struggle with addiction, I think you may enjoy this conversation. And this is episode 49, and you know what? One more episode, we're at episode 50, and I'm just incredibly grateful for you for listening. If you've been following me along this entire journey from the beginning, I raise my glass to you. Thank you so much for joining um, this journey. And if you're just jumping on and, and, and discovering Feeling Full Now, it's awesome to be here with you. I've been experimenting over the last few months with what types of interviews are most desired by my fellow listeners, you. So I'm asking you, what interviews do you love most? What do you want more of? Is there a type of guest, a type of special interview that you think may be really great? Is there someone that you think you would be great on the podcast for me to interview? I'd love to hear what your suggestions may be. Please email me at m at feelingfull.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts, any thoughts, really, any questions. More than anything else, I'd love to know what I can do better to make this podcast even more enjoyable for you. All right, without further ado, let's jump right in. Vera, it's just great to have you here today. Thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for asking. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about this topic to a new uh, audience. Yeah, it's always fun to jam with somebody, a fellow 100-pounder. I know you lost 100 pounds back in the day, and I think that would be a great place for us to start this conversation, not necessarily just about the 100 pounds, but if you could take me back to the days you know, when you were going through the binging and purging cycle that you described. What was a moment when you really felt that you hit rock bottom? Well, all right. So, you know, this was in the 1970s. And uh, in the 1970s, I, I guess maybe even early 80s, because it was actually quite a long period of time. I was in um, my, uh, my university years, my year one, year two. And just like every other young woman in university and college, I was worried about my weight. And, you know, when I look at pictures now with my weight, I can't believe that I was so worried about it. But I was. I, you know, had already done, you know, you know, go on the diet and then gain a little bit of weight back, whatever. And there came a, a sort of period of time in my year one, year two, when I wanted to just buckle down and do it. And so I actually started not by eating too much, but by restricting. I come from a German background and, you know, discipline is a goal that, that it's, it's something that we live by, you know, it doesn't matter if it hurts 
buckle down and do it anyway. So I just starved myself for almost a year, lost a lot of weight. They didn't have the diagnosis of anorexia then. And, you know, when I went to the doctor to say, hey, I don't have a period anymore. Hey, I'm fainting all the time. What's wrong? They would just say, well, eat more, but they didn't know what to do with that. I found that when I was restricting myself, all I could do is think about food. All I could do is think about, I wanted to eat, but I wouldn't let myself. And if I did let myself have a little bit of something, I spent the rest of the night when I should have been writing a paper, when I should have been going to sleep to be ready for an exam the next day, counting my calories. If I have this Mars bar, then what will happen in terms of my calories? How much do I have to run in the morning? Because I would run every morning. Like I had my whole day like nine o'clock in the morning, get up, run, 10 o'clock, do um, piano uh, practice because I wanted to learn how to play piano, you know, that kind of stuff. My whole day was focused on, even when I was in school doing doing my work, it was like this engine running in the background of how many calories can I eat? How many should I burn off? That kind of stuff. There came a time when, like that moment that you're asking about, when I was sitting on my bedside thinking, what kind of life is this where it's just Almost the, the, the term that I still use to this day, it's like hornets zapping by. Zap one thought, which was, how much can I eat today? Another zap. Yeah, but then how much do I have to run? And then another zap. Okay, well, then if I have this much, then what does that mean? Or another zap, well, you just gained three pounds. Like it, it was it, it was like one zap after another. And I just remember thinking, I have no idea what it's like to just sit and stare into space sit and enjoy music. I can't sit still anymore. It was just like this uh, hornet's nest in my head all the time. And thinking to myself, I can't live this way anymore. I mean, it's exhausting. And after, you know, six months, seven months of this kind of grueling schedule that I had laid out for myself, I decided uh, I'm just too tired and I can't do this. Well, what does that mean? I'm just going to have to let go of all that control. And then I just could not believe this. This was like the next moment, sort of this is moment number two. Was anything special about that day that you had that realization? Yeah, it was really just, I can't do this anymore. It was like, if this is what life is, this constant being stung by one thought after another, after another, it's not worth it anymore. So it was a sort of deflation. It was like, I just give up. I can't do this anymore. I'm just giving up, which threw me into a sort of profound depression because I was holding myself up with all of these thoughts and discipline discipline exactly and now it was gone it was like the structure just fell out from under me and it was like whoosh I fell to the didn't literally fall to the ground but I just my willpower just crumbled I thought okay well that's the end of it but that wasn't the end of it what ended up happening is is I slid into moment number two which is uh this really like quicksand of well that means I get to eat now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been there. And there's no there's no more curves. You get to have whatever you want. And it meant that I might be whatever weight that I was going to be. But I did not know that, I mean, like, like so many of us, you figure, well, I'll reach a certain point and then it'll stop. But that didn't happen. I just kept gaining. Well, so I ate and then I thought, well, now surely that's enough. But it wasn't enough. It was like, as soon as I was full, okay, I'm full, but now what? Because I still want to eat more. It was like the, the more switch was gone because all that discipline had eat, eaten it away. It had, it, it had eroded it, it away. And so now it was just like fair game. The fair game just wouldn't end. It was just wouldn't end. And I found that the only way that I could survive the day would be to 
throw it up. That would mean get rid of some of it, more space so that I could keep eating. So what would we call that today? We would call that bulimia. So now I had this, this life, which lasted for another number of months of basically binging and purging because it wouldn't stop. The hornets were still there. They were just in a different form now. They were in a form of, uh, well, now you've had this. Uh, if you have this, can you eat this? Uh, I mean, it was just one thought of food after another. That led me to um, an emergency. In I, li I live in Toronto. So I went to the sort of local emergency and I said, help me because I can't be by myself anymore. What's a local emergency? What, what does that mean? A local emergency department, like a hospital department. I don't know what, it's, what, it, what it would be called in uh, the US. Like, a, like an emergency room? Yeah, yeah, an emergency room, yeah. Was it a critical, a mental critical thing that you were experiencing? It felt like it to me, yes, because I just kept eating and eating and eating. I mean, I would eat to the point where I was sick, uh, like literally rolling on the ground sick. And the only way that I could um, survive that would be to throw up. And you'd think, okay, that's the end of it. But that just meant more room. So now I can eat again. It was like wow. I turned that crazy thinking off. So you drove yourself to a hospital? Yes, absolutely. I drove myself to a hospital. Wow. And then not only that, but I started to look, I mean, basically being on my own, here I am in an, a residence, a university residence, I had my own room, and thank God, because I mean, how could I have done all this behavior with a roommate? Anyway, I had my own room, but I couldn't be alone. So that I sought out what we call in uh, uh, the addiction world, bad company, just any, anybody around to avoid me being able to behave the way that I was behaving. So I started hanging out with people and I didn't want to, but I didn't want to be by myself. So I went to that, that emergency room. I talked to the doctor and I said, please do something because I can't be by myself. I, I, I'll just keep eating and throwing up. Today, in 2021, 2022, 2020, they would have said, okay, you've got an eating disorder, anorexia, or, or at that point, binge eating disorder or bulimia. Actually, it would be bulimia. They didn't know what to call it then. And they just said, no, I'm sorry, it's not an emergency, go home. And I literally begged them to say, please admit me because I can't be by myself. They didn't. So sure enough, I went back home, just continued these cycles of binging and purging. And the only way that I got out of it is this is the 1970s and m many of us would travel. You know, we go to England for a year. I went to India for a year. It was like, if we travel, it's this idea of, if I get to travel, I'm going to be focusing on sites and meeting new people and going to art galleries. And I'm going to not be eating because I'm going to be so focused on the excitement of travel. Well, guess what? <laughs> I sat in my hotel room or my lodge or my student's dorm, whatever, wherever it was that I was. I went to London first and I just went from one grocery shop to another, to another, to another, to a toilet. It's basically toilet, grocery shop, restaurant food, like, like eat somewhere and then throw it up. It didn't make any difference. Thanks for sharing all that. It's a miserable, miserable yeah. thing. It sounds like you were trying to escape something like this mental thing that was going on in your mind. And I think yeah. that's, and what do you say? That's what addiction is. The addiction is like escaping some sort of painful thoughts. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in now in, the, in my clinical reserve, I can say, you know, this is a compulsive, like literally an obsessive compulsive disorder. This is a compulsive disorder where I cannot stop wanting something. And even to the point where it's hurting me. And uh, I mean, that's, that's the clinical definition. What I felt like it was that it was this monster inside of me that was hounding me. And that the moment I had any aloneness, it would just jump on me and make it even worse. What do you think you are escaping from, if you don't mind sharing? 
it doesn't even mean like I was escaping something. It was like the act of the escape became the obsession. I could look for, you know, I have a, you know, a background, a personal background. My mother was an alcoholic and I experienced the sadness. I, I don't really want to call it trauma, but the sadness of living with that. So I could say, again, if I were speaking in my clinical hat, I would say, sure. I have an adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs where, you know, I had, um, you know, a family member who was hospitalized and, or actually died or, you know, was in it, it was an addict. I could accumulate all those things and say, there, Vera fits the criteria where, you know, addiction would be a very likely possibility. But my personal experience, it what didn't feel like I was running away from something. It felt more, except myself, I was running away from this thing that just kept saying more, do this, do this, do this with the same viciousness as my previous restricting had been. Where I, when I now see people who are anorexic restricting, which is where I started the story, I think, yeah, they're responding in an addictive manner the same way as right. addicts. It's the other side of the coin, so to yeah. speak. I'm curious, you know, with the alcoholism, um, your mom, I'm struggling with alcoholism. Yeah. I'm curious, this, this, you know, leads into a question I have for you, is, which is how much does genetics, you know, play a role in someone getting addicted to something? Well, I think it probably plays a pretty high role because what I didn't say, because I don't know, we just didn't get to it yet, is that before I, I did the whole restricting thing, I did have about a, maybe a year and a half period of time where I, I drank, you know, like I'm a teenager and I want to drink along with everybody else. But the, the type of drinking that my mother did, and she so she was hardcore alcoholic, she actually died of it. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, she was the, the type of alcoholic who drank really hard, really fast. And as it does for some women, really uh, brought her down. She became very, very depressed and actually uh, committed suicide. This is all got to do with that alcoholism. And I saw in myself as a 17-year-old that the type of drinking that I was starting, I was just meaning to join the crowd, the same kind of drive of wanting to drink really hard, even to the point where I might hurt myself. So I stopped that because... I wanted to go to university and travel and I, I could already see, oh, Vera, you don't want to be like your mother, so stop. And then I got into that whole restrictive thing. So the pattern to me looked very similar, you know, that drive, that relentless drive to consume almost, almost to the uh, desire to obliterate what is it about the adverse childhood experience that causes this behavior from like you're describing with your mom, what is it on a, on a medical term? Like, how do you describe that? I think that if we think about it from a genetic point of view, so I'm going to speak in my doctor hat now, from a genetic point of view, I like to say that al addiction, alcoholism, addiction, whatever, is actually a dopamine impairment. It's, it's something that a person could be predisposed in the way that they might be predisposed to diabetes or high blood pressure or some other medical condition. When they are exposed to something, they have a quicker bad response. If I had never picked up alcohol, how would I know? But I did because that's, you know, the culture that I was born in. So I think that I had a, a stronger reaction to alcohol thanks to the genetics. And I think that that's got to do with the dopamine impairment that I might have been born with. And we see that. We know that that's actually true for some people, that there's a genetic piece. But there's also the exposure. You know, I saw how somebody drank. And even though I knew it was bad, it was uh, uh, my mother, somebody that I love very much. And, you know, we just think when it's a family member, especially a parent, even though it's bad, if they did it, somehow it's okay. It's weird thinking, but I think that's why people become abusive if they've been abused. It's, there's a sort of permissibility that's there. Society doesn't condone it, but family did. 
And so somehow it's okay. I think being exposed to that, uh, being exposed to, you know, the mental health uh, scenario, like nurses and doctors and emergency rooms and whatnot, it was something I was already familiar with. So it was, it didn't freak me out, if you know what I mean. It was sort of part of the landscape already for me. So I had a social exposure, genetic exposure. I think all of those things played into this. So what was the turning point? So how did you go from, you know, you shared your backstory there. How did you actually drop the hundred pounds and now you're a doctor and you, you know, you run yeah. addiction facilities, helping people. What was that? That was in my twenties, uh, my early twenties. And, you know, now I'm, I'm actually 60, uh, 64. I would say that the big change was in my fifties uh, or probably 45, 50. Until then, I continued to struggle uh, with this beast on my back, this urge to consume and whatever, but I'd learned how to moderate it in different ways. So I would drink a little bit, eat a little bit, like, and when I mean eat, I mean, have a few binge purge cycles in a night. That still continued for many years, but not to the extent that it did early days. So I kind of learned how to moderate by using little bits of it's always like I, I knew I had this thing. I just had to learn, okay, how do I manage this? That would be the word. How did I manage it? A lot of my managing was just by being so busy. You know, I'm a doctor. I can be as busy as I like. Like if I don't want to sleep because I have too much work to do, there's always work to do. It's very easy to not sleep and do work. So as I found in my 20s, if I could just be with people, be busy, I could get away from this creature. It was when I was alone, quiet at night that it haunted me. I used busyness a lot. I used food. I used alcohol. I found a way to manage for many years. And it wasn't until actually the probably 45-ish that I realized something about my behavior. By now, I'm already working in addiction. And I have no awareness, no insight into myself at this point. I don't connect the dots. I have this thing that I'm this private hell, this private struggle. I'm going to call it a struggle. And meanwhile, I'm working with other people. Of course, though, I'm very interested in addiction because it's been my world. You know, I grew up with it. You didn't acknowledge that you had an addiction at that point because you were helping people with drugs mostly. Exactly. And I just didn't connect those dots. So what ended up happening is I went into medical school, used my busyness. I can't tell you how many, uh, not awards, but certificates that I sought out beyond just my medical certificate. I was going to do this extra thing and this extra thing and this workshop and that workshop. I have a ton. I'm embarrassed now by how many certificates I have of various things. Anyway, by a certain age, I was getting tired of that. And I had worked in the uh, 90s, basically when I got out of medical school in the whole HIV world, because I lived downtown and right in the heart of the gay community. I myself am gay. It felt like a natural place to work in that community. And this was when people were dying of AIDS all the time. Guess what? Super busy. I'm always going to one home, to another, to a conference. Like I said, you can always be busy, especially when you're in that field. When that got better, when people got out of the whole HIV, uh, you know, the, the protease inhibitors, the medication basically, basically that changed the face of HIV from death, fatal to chronic, there was less need for me to do that. I'm living downtown, there's the addiction world. And I just moved from that world to that world. And I felt comfortable because like I said, that was a world I was very familiar with. So I didn't connect the dots about myself until somewhere between the age of 45 and 50, when I'm getting so exhausted with myself that one day, like it was like a penny dropped. I was sitting in my living room and probably wondering 
should I eat this or should I smoke some pot or should I do whatever? I, I mean, I didn't smoke that much because it affected my next day for work. It was usually food that I used at that point. It just hit me, Vera, you are acting just like your patients with their drug use. That made me think, oh, if that's so, then why don't I do the same thing I tell my patients to do? Stop, stop, just stop. Like the whole idea of what I was doing was always trying to manage and moderate. If I just use a little bit of this and use this and do that, I'll somehow manage. This was like, just stop, go through withdrawal and see what happens. That was a penny dropping for me. And, you know, I've heard many people give a similar story. So I know I'm not the only one. I wasn't unique, but it felt unique to me. What did you do at that moment when you realized that you were just, you were acting just like your patients? I probably said to my partner, you know what? I'm going to start treating my food the way that I'm eating, like it's an addiction. And that means I have to stop eating. And I mean, when I'm talking about eating, I'm talking about junk food, uh, whatever the junk food of the day was. I'm going to stop eating this stuff. So it has to be out of the house. It has to be, I mean, I knew all the rules because I taught them to my patients. What were they? So they would be like, get the thing out of the house. So that would be ice cream, no more ice cream in the house, no more candies, no more Christmas stuff from last year it's out. Because of course I remember it in the middle of the night, no more having people come over. When they came over, I also had to stop drinking alcohol, no alcohol, because I discovered when I drink, even if I decided, okay, I'm not eating anymore, put a couple of drinks in me and all of a sudden I have every good reason to have that little bit of cheesecake and I'll start again tomorrow. Like I just had to stop all of it. So no more booze in the house, no more dessert. If my partner was going to eat something, she had to do it without me being in the room and don't tell me about it and don't tell me where it is. So basically people, places, things and mainly stop, 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 stop. And it worked like literally in a week and a half, I felt a million times better. <laughs> what stopped you from just going around the corner getting ice cream? Because a lot of people can remove it from their house, yeah. but don't have that. You know, it sounds like you have a lot of willpower and discipline. It was the knowledge that I had already, because I'd already tried several times to stop and found, oh, this is working. But then I would pick up something else, like, you know, whatever. And then, and then uh, I would think, okay, I'm no longer eating candy anymore. So that means that now six months later, I can have a little bit again, or somebody would talk me into it because they'd say, wow, you lost some weight. Great, great. Have some more. And then I would find that uh, when I had a little bit, I just want more again. It was like, it would wake up that the beast would fall asleep inside of me and only to awaken again. And what stopped was I didn't want to wake that thing up. And that continues to this day, 10, 15 years later to this day, I don't want to have a little because I do not want to waken that thing up again. Do you think it's possible for your, for you to have a little bit of ice cream? And no, no you think you need to be completely absent from it? Yes, absolutely. Because, because I can feel, especially when I'm upset or anxious or intense, you know, I'm an intense kind of person. I can feel, it's almost like the shackles of that thing. It's still there. It's, uh, I like to say it's like an engine that's idling. It's still there. I have to be very careful. I don't want to feed it even just anxiety and, and anxiousness and, and whatever. I don't want to feed it more. Uh, certainly, I don't want to feed it food because that will just bring it up. And I feel it. So when somebody comes in a room and offers cake or I'm not interested, but I know that I'm watching that person walk by and I'm wishing they would just get the hell out of the room. Room. Like just wow. leave, please. Even with alcohol, I I'm good. 
but you know, put it over there. I think this would throw a lot of people off because I'm I'm kind of like you, I think, where I'm like, I don't want it at all. And if I have a little bit, it takes me a lot of willpower and discipline yeah. to yeah. create the space again. If I have a little of ice cream, it's at least a couple of weeks before I can forget about ice cream again, you know? Exactly. Yes. That's and I think that scares a lot of people because it sounds really intense. And you said you're an intense person. I'm an intense person. So I get you. But yeah. for a lot of people who don't want to live that kind of, you know, with that kind of restriction and cut it out completely. And I'm sure you've seen this with a lot of your patients, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Look at here, Marty. See, see, you and I, you identify as an intense person. I am anyway. And I would rather be intense doing a podcast, doing the work that I'm doing, rather than intensifying over my food. So my food is quiet because it's it, it's going to go nowhere but hell. But if I work my butt off because I want to do a good job at something, I, I'm getting somewhere with that. Just to interject here for a second. I yeah. mean, we spoke about addiction transfer with your patients, how you've seen your patients who, you know, yeah. you get them off heroin or cocaine or some type of drug and you see them transfer their addiction to food yeah. um, as, as a new type of addi- a new form of addiction. So it's kind of like right. one getting off one bad addiction or one unhealthy addiction and going to another unhealthy addiction. And I'm curious, yeah. it sounds like you've gotten yourself to a place where you're, you, you figured out how to get off one unhealthy addiction with the food and yeah. live a healthy life. But now it sounds like you're looking at your work in a way which is like using the same energy. I don't know if it's the same addictive tendency. And I'm curious more than anything else is once the addictive mentality is kind of hardwired into yeah. psyche, is yeah. that always there and that we can just point it in the right direction to be addicted yeah. to the right thing? Or is it that's a great question. And I don't think anyone's ever actually got me on that. You, you know, you're kind of getting me here, cornering me as it were. I think what it is actually, yeah, exactly. I think what <laughs> it is actually is the energy is there, but it's not, it's, I'm not stuck in the loop that, that, that loop of, I want this and then I have this and then I got to do this. I'm still riding the bronching horse or bronco or whatever, you know, but, but I'm, I'm riding, I'm getting somewhere and then I can get off. Like, like I, I don't work now to the point where I uh, hurt myself. I work to the point where it was like, oh, it was an intense workout because that's what I like doing. But then I can let it go. It's not this endless de- deadly loop. And I actually think that a lot of addicted people, people with addiction, get caught in a loop because they don't know what to do with that intensity that they have. Because, you know, what can we do in today's world where, where we would have used this intensity in the past? I don't know. People would have gone traveling. They would have, uh, uh, you know, been entrepreneurs. They would have done all sorts of right. creative things. And so much of that is cut off now. And so people end up using it by getting caught in this deadly loop. I wonder how much of this getting out of the loop for you was dealing with some of the emotional pain that you may have been struggling with before that was keeping you in the loop. Is Is that a possibility? For sure. For sure. And I can tell you that all those years where I was managing, I was also going to therapy and I was talking endlessly about the, you know, the trials and tribulations of childhood. And, you know, why did I keep doing these things that were so self sabotaging? And I got nowhere with that because I was still using my substances or behaviors. And it wasn't until I stopped doing those that I had the clarity, the mental clarity. This is another addiction tenant. You got to stop using first before you can actually heal all those things that may be perpetuating the loop. I stopped those things, then started to actually do the things that I needed to do to heal. There I was previous to this talk, 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 talk with therapists post 
stopping. I actually went to a 12-step program, which helped me stop because I have all the support that's basically in a social way, keeping me back from myself. And so then I started to talk about these things, but in the context of a, a practice of, you know, where can I make amends to myself and to other people? And, and it wasn't just talk, it was also a- action. So I was sober. And then I had a platform of behavior that actually made a difference. If you had asked me 10 years ago, you know, tell me about your, your mother, the childhood, I wouldn't have been able to say anything because I had too much sadness and shame about it. Now, today, I mean, I mentioned it to you without you even asking me too much information. And, you know, I still have sadness, but I don't have the same shame and it's appropriate sadness. And, but I had to get there. I had to get there through, I don't want to call it therapy, but therapeutic work. So how important do you think it is to for someone to actually deal with this emotional yeah. pain in their lives to actually overcome the addictive tendency because so many right. people will put themselves on that restrictive diet without yeah. dealing with like the underbelly right. of the pain and then they kind of fall on their face. So stopping the substance is only, well, basically what we call step one. It's, it's only the first step. And then after that, if you want to stay stopped, you have to start working with the emotional pain because that is the trigger that will always bring you back. How, how do we deal with our mental stresses and emotional disturbances guilts, resentments, whatever it is, anger from the past, trauma from the past, unless we work with it, because there's only so long you can live in that place without some kind of comfort, which was your drug or food. And putting down the food is the first thing it gives relief. But then the now I'm stuck with myself. For example, let me just give you an example. We had a food addiction program in the place where I work, the the treatment center where I worked for a couple of years. So that meant people that were identified purely as food addicts, sugar addicts, sat in the same rooms, tables, and activities as the heroin addicts and the cocaine addicts and marijuana addicts. Like we're all in the same room. What we found is that the people that were the most emotionally demanding were the food addicts, not the heroin addicts who didn't have their drug anymore, or the you know fentanyl addicts or the cocaine addicts. It was the food addicts because the fentanyl and the cocaine and the tobacco and the whatever else had food. They would stop their substance and then run downstairs and cram their face up, you know, uh, you know, basically a lineup to the vending machine, whereas the food addicts were not allowed to do that. And so they, they were sitting there in their shit, basically, if I can use that word. They didn't have something else to go to. And uh, similarly, how long can you live in that space? Only as long until you start cleaning up some of that emotional debris. Right. So right. That, it keeps you sober. It won't get you sober, but it keeps you sober. So people that come to the centers to, what is it, a few weeks they would come for typically? Yeah, it, was, to, it was a four-week program, just like all our other programs. So four weeks, someone gets off the addictive sugars and yeah. crap, all the chemicals that are in the food, and then they go yeah. back to their home. Yeah. What percentage of these folks actually stay, so quote-unquote, clean from these highly processed addictive foods? Probably the same as any other drug of a person that came into the system. They actually, it was a pretty good response rate if they continued to, uh, I mean, what we would call aftercare, if they got hooked into a 12 step program, if they got, some of them didn't want to do that. So they had their own sort of support group, but they had to do something. And if they did that, I mean, even to this day in my Facebook group, I've got a number of people who are still food sober, but out of the hundred uh, in one, one year, 
year that came through, I'd say probably only about 30%, but that's about the same as any of our programs. Right. And 30% is actually 30% people who are actually staying yeah. on a, any type of food regimen is actually a high amount in our yeah, modern culture. Right. Yeah. And, and it's the same as what it's the term that we use in the addiction world. That's why I think this is a, a useful way to see things is, you know, it works if you work it. And the people who didn't stay clean and sober were the people who were not willing to um, have what we call a food buddy. It's kind of like a sponsor, but it's a little bit more. So instead of me calling and saying, hey, I didn't drink today, I would call and say, hey, this is what I'm going to eat today. And I'm not going to have anything other than this stuff that I'm telling you right now. And if I need to change it, because let's say they ran out of that at the grocery store, I'm going to call you and tell you what the change is. Like that strict. That level of accountability goes a long way. I mean, I don't know how long that's sustainable for, but that level of accountability sounds really powerful. But it's sustainable. Like we still have four or five, this is four or five years ago. We still have people, like I said, in the, in, in, in uh, the Facebook group is where I sort of see over the years, how people are doing. And the ones that are still clean and sober still have their same food buddy. So it's possible. Yeah. Have you noticed any personality types that this type of structure works especially well for? I always think that probably the extroverts the person who likes to depend on other people, not, not depend on work with other people. Cause I actually consider myself an extrovert. I used to think I was an introvert, but I actually think now nah, I'm good with being an extrovert. So in other words, I get nurturance from being in the company of others. I think that the person who struggles with, they want to control it themselves. And I don't want to ask for help are the people who have the hardest time. But if you can't ask for help, then that means that you're still letting your ego, your, your uh, willpower, think it can dominate. And the whole thing about addiction is, no, willpower is uh, very much at the whim of our mental state. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I'm very angry and you tell me don't, don't blow up and don't yell, if I'm super angry, I'm going to yell and scream and it's the same, I'm going to eat. Like, you know, the dependence on willpower is just, it's the weakest chain in the link, the weakest link in the chain. Yeah. And I think often, you know, it's Gabor Mate, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with his work. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. The, the Realm of Hungry Ghost, that book, you know, just completely blew my mind. And he has this, you know, one of his talks recently I was watching, he has this piece that he wrote, or that he said that I actually wrote down, which is addiction is not a choice anyone makes. It's not uh-huh. a moral failure. It's not right. a weakness of character, failure of will. It's an inherent brain disease. It's yeah. a response to human suffering and attempt yes. to temporarily escape suffering. And I think that's, that's really interesting because back to your story, it was like you were going to escape really painful thoughts. And I've been there myself where yes. I find myself binging or overeating. I'm attempting yeah. to escape. You know what it is? It's to me, what I'm, what's coming to me now is the idea of control. You know, yes. I'm trying to control the experience that I'm having. And when I feel like I'm not controlling the experience, I'm t- I, I tend to yeah. notice the cravings get heightened. Yes. And one of the things that we need to learn uh, is that reality is to some degree not controllable. So there's that concept of I have to surrender or let go to reality. Very hard to do, if, especially if you're uh, very determined and motivated and you know entrepreneurial and all that kind of stuff. Like it, it just that it, it means that you know the very thing that's gotten you to be successful or gotten me to be successful. It, it, I have to lay down those weapons and just say, okay, whatever will happen. That's hard to do. But addiction demands it. Addiction demands it. Yeah, you gotta, you yeah. have to, you have to surrender. Yeah, and have it, to surrender. That's where that quote comes from. What got you here won't get you there. Ah, 
Yeah. I'm not sure who said that, but someone deserves credit for it. It's it's a good one. That's right. I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to look it up and see if I can find it. Yeah. I'm curious for parents now that are home with, you know, with kids and they're, you know, want to make sure they pass along really good habits and, and things like that. What are some things that you recommend would be powerful parenting tools? Okay. So this is the thing. Parents are the, in a way, the most influential of our human nature where we're going because you know it's the kids that are children that are going to carry us i'm going to die soon and the children will take over parents are teaching the kids are children are looking towards their parents for guidance and there's a kind of unfortunate belief i don't want to sound old-fashioned here but there's a, an unfortunate belief that we have to let children decide for themselves no they're learning from us they have they have the ability to make a decision when they get a little older like in you know when they have frontal lobe maturity in their teens and 20s until then they're learning from us i wish that parents would appreciate that. And then therefore, in the same way as you're not going to give your kid beer at the age of six or seven, or or uh, start smoking at the age of six or seven, to, to limit sugar, processed foods, industrial junk food is a gateway drug, just like those other substances are. And we know that with marijuana, for example, the longer you can delay or stop the process, but I don't know if that's possible, but delay the entry, the initiation of it, like to 18, 19, the less likely the person will stay with that after the experimental phase. And similarly with sugar, the longer you can delay the process of this intoxicating thing, uh, but that's not what we do. We let kids have, you know, cereal and, and, and candy, Halloween and all that sort of stuff. So the number one thing, parents, I would, is that it, it is up to the parents. That's number one. And then the first tool is, again, this is not going to sound very positive, but can you see that sugar is an unnatural food product? It's natural in the fruit and in the vegetable, but when you take it out of that, it's a drug just like cocaine and tobacco and any other drug alcohol is. I mean, what is alcohol initially? It was grapes. It was grain. It was not an addiction at that point, but you take the substance out of that, you make it a drug. So if parents can see that sugar is not a benign substance. It's not an act of love. It's actually a toxin that you're giving your vulnerable child. Obviously, we're living in today's society where it's all over the place. Can you at least limit it? Because we can handle a certain amount without damage. The, the problem is it's so much, it's so abundant, it overwhelms us. But limiting it, you know, based on our early, earlier in the conversation, limiting it is actually a, a losing proposition as well. Yes, it is a losing proposition. However, I think that early days, like I need to limit now, but in a sense, I'm already done. I'm, I don't want to say damaged, but I'm done. If I had stopped early, early days, like when I was 17, 18 and going crazy, I may still have been able to back off and moderate because uh, I mean, I think addiction is chronic and progressive. The more the dopamine receptors are beaten down, you know, it's like somebody who, who who's not yet diabetic can become pre-diabetic and then they can go back to they're okay. But once they've become a diabetic, it, it, they're now a diabetic and they can't have any. Once you're addicted, you can't go back. So, but maybe early days, like if 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 we still had a little bit of a cake at Christmas time on the weekend or, or on a birthday, I'm sure a little bit is not going to cause a problem. It's when things have changed and altered that's when it becomes a problem. Right. It sounds like when it becomes like a crutch for an emotion or when it comes a, a thing you do when you feel something, right? So I guess yeah, that's, that's right. 
That's then right. It, so having a little bit for no good reason, other than it's a Sunday afternoon or a holiday, it's fine. But when you have it as a way to cope with and sadness, it regular, yeah. then, it, then it becomes out, you create that loop of the, exactly. the, the habit loop out of this. Exactly. If it's not yet a loop, then don't let it be, don't let it be a loop. Don't let it become a loop. I, I love yeah. that. That's, that's really, that's really good. I'm curious, you know, so this is a, obviously a global problem that we have yeah. now. Yes. And, you know, as you know, sugar is in, you know, almost every packaged product and it's very common for sugar to be everywhere. So what is the solution in your mind on the global scale? Any, anything that you think would be a powerful way for people to, for us as, a, as, as humanity to navigate ourselves? I mean, we could look at like policy recommendations like, uh, you know, uh, Robert Lustig, who's the, you know, major U.S. pediatric endocrinologist. He's talking about, can we tax sugar? Can we, uh, you know, have labels on it? Like with smoking, the the horrible, you know, an amputated leg on it or something, just like with smoking, you see the, the crusty lung that's looking disgusting with cancer. But, but I actually think I would like to just say, I would be happy with my contribution if I wish list would be. Can we change the norm of sugar as love and as benign substance to it is a toxin? And therefore, I would not want to give my little child a cigarette or a cigar or, or, or a little bit of a snort of cocaine. I just wouldn't do that. Well, I wouldn't do that with sugar either. And we don't, we don't see it that way. Another way to visualize that would be I'd love to see it that, you know, if you are a smoker and you want to smoke, you have to go outside now on the deck. Uh, you can't smoke in the house anymore, right? You can't, in, in a restaurant, you can't smoke. You have to go outside. Could we do the same with desserts? You really have to have that dessert. You got to go outside into the dessert room. You can't mm. stay here at the table. Wow. You make it uh, a substance that suggests the uh, toxicity that it actually is. We're not there yet. We've got advertising we have to address. We've got a whole mental mindset, public mindset, which is sugar is not a big deal. Well, I'm going to say it is. Wow. Well, I think that's a really good place to to wrap the conversation. Is there anything else you want to add for people listening today? Yeah. Okay. So it, it kind of circles back to one of the things that we said before, and that is that it's when a person thinks, okay, so what's the message here that I'm listening to this? You're telling me I have to quit sugar. And I'm saying, if you find that you're depending on it as crutch, as a repetitive thing to self-soothe yourself, yeah, you probably do. But the good news is, and I want to tell this, this is the message I want to leave here, is that that feeling of deprivation and that feeling of, oh, my God, how will I manage? I mean, I was scrambling when I was younger to, like, you know, how do I get out of this nest of a hornet's nest, is that it's 10 days, two weeks, tops, three weeks of hell. Lock yourself up somewhere. Like, we had a treatment center. Do something. But you will get over it. And then you will have the freedom. I'm not in that hornet's nest anymore. And when I walk by the cheesecake and the and the whatever it is, if I dwelled on it, sure, I'd be going, oh man, why can't I? But I don't. I'm just like, I don't need that. Thank you. That that to me looks like a hornet's nest and I don't want to go there anymore. So you're actually going to have a feeling of what I say, freedom of, of obsession. That is such a good feeling. And I get to use the intensity of who I am towards, because I still want to ride the horse but I get to do it in things that actually give me benefit, you know? Love that. It's a great way to channel the energy. 
Yes. Yes. Well, Dr. Barry, thank you so much for joining today. Really, really enjoy this conversation. I can, we could definitely do a much longer conversation, hopefully another time, but um, you have a lot of wisdom to share. And I just want to thank you for your journey and for sharing it with us all on Feeling Full. And thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation too. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to. And I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests, or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.